0: church and to uh, to Jack in particular for uh, preaching for me in my stead. When you've got a grandbaby coming, you don't exactly know when it's going to come. So we had sort of this three-week window of opportunity and went ahead and made plans for Jack to preach those three Sundays in a row, which is an excellent experience, of course, for him and, of course, an excellent blessing for us. Uh, I was here two of the three Sundays, but I've not been preaching. And I'll be honest with you, last week, maybe the first time ever I got to just be congregation, And I was just sitting there the whole time thinking, what a great church we have. You know, what a great church we have. What a blessing it is. So thank you uh, for allowing me to be able to spend some time with our grandchild and um, and kind of catch my breath and some other things here. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing with our, our journey through 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 7 through 18 this morning. And I want to begin by looking at a text from Jeremiah, the very text that we looked at during our assurance of pardon. Uh, this is one of those profound Theological text, but also a profoundly wise text, A a text that has to do with your perspective on how you should view yourself, others around you, and the world in general. And, uh, and, and that's really where I want to take Paul's passage today as he is battling uh, the false teachers in Corinth as well. But let me uh, read to you again Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Uh, thus saith the Lord. Whenever you hear thus saith the Lord, you really ought to make sure your antenna up. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The problem with the Corinthian church, they had put, made boasting an art form. You see this all through 1 Corinthians. You see this in 2 Corinthians. And in general, by the time we get to this portion of 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians have generally uh, repented. Uh, from a lot of the pride and that sort of thing, they have salt uh, and humility with pride uh, with, uh, to the apostle Paul, but there 's still these interlopers, these usurpers, these false teachers, these eminent apostles uh, 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 that are still involved with the Corinthian church, and Paul has to take them to task. They were sort of the ringleaders of, of, of the boasters, and they are consumed with this idea of, of wisdom and might and riches. And if you make those your God, there's just not going to be any room for Jesus Christ. And Paul is taking these false teachers, again, to task as we go through this particular passage. And in so doing, he's going to help us to understand how to have a proper perspective on ministry. So let's unpack these wonderful texts right now. Let me go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon us as we look at... uh, At this passage this morning, Lord, in faith, we turn to you and we pray, God, that you would help us just to understand how this text written regarding a particular situation in a church in Greece can help us today deal with the things that we're dealing with in so many ways. Nothing really changes and help us to be honest and help us to be able to be clothed with humility, God. Let us recognize where our pride and our boasting lies and where our hope lies. And I pray, God, that as we look at the principles taught here today with a proper perspective in Second Corinthians chapter 10, that you would help us to develop a proper perspective about ourselves and about our ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to look at four different uh, sections here. I'm sorry, five different sections here. Uh, You'll find your home group's helps insert probably to be of benefit to you as we kind of break down this passage. It is something of a lengthy passage, so it might be helpful for you to look at this as we journey through it. Uh, We're going to see a proper confidence in verses 7 through 8, a proper uh, genuineness in verses 9 through 11, proper comparisons in verse 12, proper boasting, verses 13 through 17, and proper approval... In verse 18. So, first of all, here we see a proper confidence in verses 7 uh, through, uh, through 8. Notice that Paul starts off here saying, You are looking at things outwardly. You are looking at things outwardly. Now, to be honest with you, with the Greek, that can be taken one of two ways, and both of them fit the context here. But one of them is he is saying, You, you know, you are just looking at things outwardly, and you're consumed with outward appearances and ideals, and you're missing the real value of what Jesus offers. Uh, uh, through the church here, and, and when I thought about this, I thought about that wonderful text. You remember when, uh, remember when God tells uh, Samuel uh, to go anoint the next king. Uh, and, uh, because Saul was so corrupt to go to next, uh, go to Jesse's household and there's going to be a feast there. And, uh, you remember that situation where David's oldest brother comes up and Eliab is there and Samuel immediately saw Eliab. I mean, he was just a hunk of man, right? He was evidently tall and good looking and, and had a bearing and this kind of thing. And, and Samuel thought, yeah, this guy looks kingly, right? But what does God say? Uh, he Samuel says, surely this is the Lord's anointed, but the Lord said to him, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow. That is a powerful text in a culture that is consumed with. Outward appearance. So that may be one way Paul is saying he's saying don't be that way, don't look at the outward. But the other one is is that it could be an imperative where he's saying you need to look, you need to see what's obvious before you, and then that fits because he's going to go on and defend his apostleship and the influence that he has had in the Corinthian church. Here again, he is dealing with these uh, usurping false teachers. They valued Greek philosophy, uh, sophistry, eloquence, and that kind of thing above doctrine, above truth, uh, they, they also probably had some influence or there were, some of them were, uh, were, uh, had a, a, a good streak of Jewish legalism in them when they really wanted to have all these rules and regulations and that kind of thing. And they had jettisoned grace in many ways, which was a constant problem uh, with these churches here. Uh, so what Paul goes on to say here, he, calls the, he says that they're actually guilty of preaching another Jesus in a different gospel. And folks, our church stands for the truth. It stands for Jesus. It stands for, uh, for, for, uh, for the true gospel. We have to be trained to be able to discern when people are out there preaching another Jesus and another gospel. And it happens all the time. Matter of fact, it may even be the growing predominant view in, in many, many ways, in many, many uh, denominations, many, many uh, churches. In uh, verse 10.5, Paul says here that they, that they have speculations that are raised up against the knowledge of God. So that's what he's attacking here. Basically, what these people have taken the gospel, they, 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 they got the gospel as given to the Corinthian church from Paul, and then they want to mold it to their own worldview. They want to impose their views, Greek culture, Jewish legalism, whatever it might be, upon the church. And they're about to destroy the church. So it's one reason why Paul's wording is so strong here. He sees this as happening. And if Corinth goes, the rest of the Greek peninsula might go. So he is battling them, this concern, to the point where what they are teaching, you can't even recognize as, as a gospel anymore. I was thinking last week, many of you have met uh, our little Westy Sky uh, we're Westie people. Scott, Scott, uh, Skye's a Westie, a West Highland white Terrier. She was designed for the highlands of Scotland, okay? She has a double layer of fur, and, um, and she was not designed for South Carolina in the summertime. So as the heat comes on, she becomes very, very hot. And I was taking her to the spa the other day, and uh, I dropped, which her haircut costs twice as much as mine. So I took her to the spa today, and I delivered this noble, majestic, bearded, thick, woolly-furred Scottish maiden. You know that was just 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 looked like a picture-perfect Westie. And when I picked her up later, I picked up what appeared to be a giant albino weasel fetus. (laughs) I mean, and and you couldn't even recognize her. So am I walking around the neighborhood with this this dog? You know, people think, "What did you do with Sky?" And why did you get this giant albino weasel fetus? Uh, This is what the people in Corinth have done. They have they had so changed the gospel, you would no longer recognize it anymore. It looked like something completely, completely different as they're trying to mold Christianity uh, into their old world, own worldview instead of uh, the other way around. And he says here, but he makes a defense here, these people are claiming to be in Christ, right? They, they are especially in Christ uh, here. That They had this unique devotion. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, you remember you having the different parties involved in 1 Corinthians? I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I am of Christ. These are people probably the Christ party oh, I am of Christ, I'm above all of you, I am just of Christ, which is not an altogether bad thing to say. Uh, But but they had this, there was an arrogance about them, that they had somehow a, a level of superiority that even the apostle Paul didn't have. And this is another thing you see within the church. You know, if you think about uh, if you've ever had involvement with some of the churches of Christ, now churches of Christ are independent. They all don't have this view, but most of the ones around here that I've seen have this view that, that you are not saved unless you are baptized by one of their own church members. Okay? That, there, there's an elitism with that. You know, so, so you've got to be baptized by one of us for you to be really in Christ, to be in the club. I remember in the early days, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jehovah's Witnesses said this number of people that are saved are limited to 144,000. You see that in the book of Revelation, right? It's figurative language, okay? And then, of course, their denomination grew bigger than that, so they had to they had to up that number. Oh, you know, new rule—it's <laughs> more than one hundred forty-four thousand. You see this in some Pentecostal churches, some radical Pentecostal churches. There's sort of a caste system of hierarchy. Of the uh, of you're more spiritual if you can do more sign gifts. And they're kind of, you're kind of maybe, you, you sort of feel a little inferior if maybe you can't speak in tongues and things like that. We're just sort of made for this kind of thing. And this is what Paul is really attacking here. This people, they have a caste system here where, where he, he sarcastically calls them the most eminent apostles here. Now, they're not the apostles like Matthew, like John, like Peter, but they're claiming to be apostles here. And then he says here, I want to boast about our authority. Now, Paul hates boasting. He hates the sin of pride. But when it comes to the things of Christ, what Christ has done, he is all about boasting about Christ. And notice he says here that he has apostolic authority and calling because that is what the Lord, quote, which the Lord gave. And why did the Lord call him to do that? Well, he goes back and he's actually quoting our Jeremiah passage that we start off with and which we had for our... our, um, Our uh, affirmation of faith earlier on, he says here, it's for building up and not for destroying you. Now, what's interesting about that particular text is is, uh, this idea of building up. It comes up before Jeremiah speaks of the coming of the new covenant here. He says here in Jeremiah 31, I will watch over them to build them and plant, declares the Lord. Now, so Paul's going back, he's a good Old Testament theologian, he's going back to the new covenant, he's going back to the preamble of the new covenant, and he knows, because he's been called by Christ, that he is part of that fulfillment. There was never a church in Corinth before Paul got there. There was never a church in Europe before Paul got there. Well, maybe from Pentecost, but not likely. So basically, he knows that the new covenant has come and he is part of the fulfillment of that. He is going to build up. The problem is these people are tearing down. And what he expects the Corinthians to do is to, to, to look and see who are the ones that are building and who are the ones that are tearing down here. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter seven, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? These folks are thistles, but they look like figs. And the Corinthians are not being discerning. So he's telling them, kind of giving them a little bit of a, of a wake up call here. And he says that he will not be, I will not be put to shame. And it's, it, he's having a, you think, why in the world would Paul have to defend himself? Well, because people tend to want to believe the kind of things that the false teachers are teaching here. He's like, "I've planted this church. What else do I need? Do I need to take off my shirt so you can see the scars that I have on my body from Jesus Christ? Why don't you ask the false teachers how many times they've been beaten for the sake of the Lord?" And yet they're, they really seem to be very slow with this idea. But I love this idea of not being put to shame here. If you'll notice if you'll notice in our culture. For those like you who embrace a biblical worldview, who, who love truth, who believe in, in the morality of Scripture and the number one weapon of those who are opposed to that seems to be shame. They want to shame you for being a hater, for being old-fashioned, for not being with the times. Be, do not fall for that. We stand before the Lord. We do not stand for some Berkeley graduate hippie. That might have been too strong. But, but we stand before the Lord, and we will be judged by the Lord. And we have a calling from the Lord. There is no reason for us to be ashamed if we, are, if we have a biblical worldview, even if everybody else has abandoned it. Let's go on here now to proper genuineness. We see this in verses 9 through 11 here. Uh, he's, he, he's kind of talk, bringing in some of the, the things that these false teachers are saying here. He says, I, I do not want to wish to, to terrify you with my letters. He's also using a little bit of sarcasm here. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letter, when absent such a person we are also indeed when present here so basically you know they 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 seem to be unable to attack his message it says his weighty her letters are weighty and strong so what do they do they attack the person again this is this is what the people who disagree with biblical worldview do they can't attack the message Uh, i mean again we have the fruit of the message but they will attack you they'll go after you personally because they can't go after the message here but and they, and they go on to talk about how Paul's presence is unimpressive uh, and his speech is contemptible. Now, Paul affirms that his letters are weighty and strong. He says that's true, right? But, but he, but he can also confirm about his appearance, evidently. Uh, according to a first century writing called the Acts of Paul's and Thecla, uh, the Syriac version describes the apostle Paul as this. Listen to this. The apostle Paul was a man of middling size. His hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked, and his knees were projected or far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. Okay, if you look, if you look at Greek art, right? I, I have been blessed. I have been to the Louvre. I've been to Florence. I've been to Rome. I have seen lots of Greek art. I never saw a statue of a bow leg, unibrow, middle sized man that's balding. It, it's it's never. It's always you know this and the discus player and David and right. They're always cut. They always look like lifeguards or something like that. Okay, Paul didn't fit their image of what was to be really spectacular. You got to look good up there, right? Paul didn't meet that image. He did not meet this Greek Roman ideal of of, of the perfect person, either in appearance or in his speech. I mean, Paul's the guy, like, I mean, every now and then, some of you may get bored in a sermon. I I accept that truth. But not one of you in 15 years has ever died. Paul was preaching to Eutychus. Eutychus fell out of a window because of boredom and died. All right, so Paul probably wasn't the most dynamic speaker. But you know what he had? Truth. Power. Conviction. He was not ashamed of the gospel. And for the real Christian, that's what they want. Aren't we just have we not been schmoozed enough already in our life? Are we not just worn out on sales pitches and entertainment? Well, that's what Paul's trying to get at with the Corinthians. These usurpers, they wanted power, not humility. They wanted rhetoric, not truth. They wanted style, not substance. They wanted pride, not love. They wanted effort, not grace. They wanted entertainment, not worship. They wanted earthly blessings, not heavenly rewards. As one commentator said, they invented their own personal standards for greatness, met them, and then proudly proclaimed their superiority. You know, it's like one commentator was saying, this is kind of like these Hollywood award shows. I mean, how many awards can you give out to the same people? He's so beautiful. Here's wo- he's so wonderful. Here's an award. You're going to give me one next month? Oh, he's so beautiful. He's so wonderful. Here's an award. So you got a living room full of awards given by each other. You know, it's, uh, if Will Smith hadn't cold cocked that comedian, I don't think any of us would know what happened at the Academy Awards this year. But that got our interest, right? It's just, this, uh, it's just this this. little love feast within their own little group, and they can't understand why everybody else doesn't, doesn't join in, and yet they're not even allowed to join in in so many ways. So he says, what we are in word, in letters we are and absent, we are also there. So in other words, his words are weighty and strong, but his person is also weighty and strong. One of the reasons why they're saying this is that Paul... In the last conflict that occurred, where Paul had to write his strong letter, and now and he's writing this letter now to see if they've repented, he, he was not willing to destroy the church for his own sake. And he thought he'd give it a little bit of time. You ever done that with your children? You, you need to. You know, there's times when it's not time to draw the line in the sand. It, it, there's hunger, fatigue, mood, whatever it might be, but you wait for a And He was willing to do this. You know. Let me tell you what these these false teachers wanted. It's kind of like uh, World War II, Berlin, where Hitler basically said, it would suit me if every single German died defending national socialism. And in fact, the, the Russians were just blocks from the bunker where he committed suicide. He was willing to pull the whole house down on top of himself. The false teachers would be willing to do the same thing. Paul said, no, love would keep me from doing that. We're going to take our time with this and be more charitable, be more gracious. I'm not going to get in an argument and, 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 and ruin everything for these people. And yet, they would have been willing to do that. So they they see him as a coward. They misrepresent his love and his concern for the church as uh, as weakness. So Paul's saying here, basically, what you see is what you get. I am Paul. I'm the same person absent as I am publicly and uh and yet they are unwilling to make room for God because it's all about themselves. Now we see here proper comparisons in verse 12. For we do not hold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding here. Now, he, again, he's being a little sarcastic here. Uh, he's uh, he's not to be bold enough to class or compare himself with these most eminent apostles here. Uh, but but he brings up a good point, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull an in an application that doesn't necessarily have to do with this particular text, but I think it's helpful here. This whole idea of sin of comparisons. This the, the idea of comparison, comparing yourselves with others can do only harm to you and to others around you. It is a grievous sin. Theodore Roosevelt said this, comparison is the theft of joy. And we now have this institutionalized through social media. The whole thing seems to be involving you comparing yourself with others. And we've gone from comparing ourselves in our own, somebody in our class in our high school, to comparing ourselves with people all over the world uh, through Instagram and all these other, uh, all these other things here. Uh, one commentator said this, Every time we look at another person and measure ourselves against them, we are throwing the door wide open to pride. If we can find a way to score ourselves higher than them, or it's twin sister's self-pity if we can't. There's one of two ways, pride or self-pity. It's going to end up being one of those two ways. Uh, and, and we do this all the time. Again, it's encouraged all the time. Now, this is not against competition. There's nothing wrong with good old competition. I bet Paul would have been a, a great soccer player. He would have been tough on the field. I mean, he could hang the ball in his unibrow. I mean, he'd have it made, right? You know? So he's not against competition, but he's against this pride of comparison. How do, we, how do we fight that? What you do is you do what we've sung about already. We just settle in with the fact that God is holy love and we believe in him. And we believe he's going to care for us no matter what happens. Psalm uh, 139 is of great comfort here. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes had seen my unformed substance, and in your book there are written the days which ordained for me, when as yet there is not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts towards me. O God, how vast is the sum of them. Now, what are the areas where you struggle with either pride or self-pity? My guess is this psalm is captured. There's a physical thing here. God designed you the way he intended to design you here. But there's also a providential thing here. He's planned and ordained the days of your life. Everything that happens to you comes through his great hand of providence. Yes, even the bad things. Because he has a plan. And then he says, how precious are your thoughts to me. His thoughts are good for you. He loves you. He's not just saying he loves you. He really does love you. Now, if that's not enough to keep us compa- comparing each other to other people, you know, a lot of people that you're jealous of or you think you're better of, they don't know the Lord. They, they can't understand what this principle is. He says here when they measure themselves by themselves, compare themselves with themselves, you know, there, there's a whole idea here uh, that, that, that there's a, a lack of objective criteria. And what Paul is trying to bring back into the game here is objective criteria. Let's look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who's the false teacher? Who's the real teacher here? You know, let me t- there's nothing... We go through the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay? We had these, these three marvelous graduates today, and, and, and what did we give them as a gift? Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. That book is probably 100 years old, probably the best devotion around. And it's wonderful. But there is nothing sexy about it. You know? There's nothing sexy about that. It's just basic truth that will get you through the day and get you through the night. That's what most of Christianity is. People kind of go for the prophet who has a word of faith or they go for this or this entertainment or thing. There's just no getting around the fact that, that basically god 's standard is the Bible, and that needs to be our comparison for everything. But these people, Paul says here they are without understanding. I love what d. a. Carson says here. He says, little men can be dangerous, especially when they they position themselves in such a way as to capture some stolen glory from great men. you 've got these little uh, nagging false teachers that are trying to trying to to capture. Some of the glory from the Apostle Paul, from from Jesus, and as I was reading that quote, I couldn't help but thinking—you probably think of the same thing. Beauty and the Beast, right? You know the the old one, the cartoon one. You remember there's this scene. You remember Gaston's the really good-looking bad guy, and he wants to. Should I have I already lost you on this illustration? All right, Gaston's the really good looking bad guy, and he wants to put Belle's dad in jail so that Bell will have to marry him, right? You're following with me. You all saw it, you knit it. Uh, and then but 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 there's this little creepy, greasy sidekick named uh what's his name? Corfu? Lufu, Lefou, right? And, uh, he's, he's this little creepy psychic who's trying to get glory from Gaston, right? Well, that's what these guys are. They're trying to get glory from Paul. And in that, in that movie, Gaston and Lafontaine are singing a song, and no one plots like Gaston, takes cheap sh- shots like Gaston, plans to persecute harmless crack pots like Gaston, you know? If you could think of, no matter how good-looking they are, no matter how well-educated they are, if no matter how articulate they, they are, if you could think of these false teachers that are everywhere as as little lefous, <laughs> it really will help. Because we can be dazzled by eloquence. We can be dazzled by education. We can be dazzled by entertainment. I'll never forget one time I was in a hotel years ago, and I... Uh, um, happened to turn on Joel Osteen, and Joel Osteen was on the television. And uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I was mesmerized. The guy can communicate, but he said nothing. But he said nothing to 80,000 people, which also impressed me, right? Be careful of what impresses us. It's a really a principle here of humility, isn't it? Humble people are not willing to boast or brag or promote themselves. They're a little uncomfortable with, with compliments, as a matter of fact. They submit all their plans uh, to the Lord. They, they, they're not complaining all the time. God, why haven't you given me X, Y, and Z? Because they don't think they deserve A, B, and C. They understand that everything's from grace. They're Job. Naked I came into the world. Naked I leave. The Lord's given. The Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Boy, you know how happy we could be if we could live like that? When a humble person walks into a room, they're thinking, others, what can I do for others? How can I serve others? What can I, how can I find out about them? One reason why you're so anxious when you go into a party or some, maybe because you're just introverted, but come to church, whatever, is, is you feel like you've got to. There's an image thing here. Or you've got to tell somebody something or whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Think about that. Think about that. I really think that's the secret to contentment in so many ways. All right, now we see here a proper boast. In here, he goes on here. He says, "We will not boast uh, beyond our measure." He mentions that two different times. Again, the standard of scripture, uh, the standard here of the measure is scripture. So he's going to take them back to scripture all the time. He says, "We are not overextending ourselves." They were the first to come to you. So he's kind of taking them back to where they were. He's remembered there was no church before I came to Corinth. And the one who planted this church and introduced you to Christ is now the one saying that you need to complete that by getting rid of these these false teachers. He's going back to the ark's axiom, the fortress of first principles here. There's nothing spiffy about it, but he's just calling them back to the good old days when they accepted the gospel when he was there before. He said, uh, and, and he talks about here this sphere, and what he's he's kind of moving him towards uh, a, a next a next sign of their sanctification here that they want uh, they want him he wants them to move beyond their selfishness towards fulfilling their role of the great commission. And uh, so he says here, I want to go and preach uh, in verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even in regions beyond you. And part of what he's saying here, he says, you've been so into these inner conflicts and this selfishness and comparison and this shine that you keep trying to put up. You've forgotten the Great Commission. So there's two things I want to see. I want to see you continue to take up the collection for the Jerusalem church, and I want you to help me plant more churches. Y'all, this is where most ministerial burnout occurs. Pastors come in, they're idealistic, they want to fulfill the Great Commission, they've got a congregation, they preach about this and everything, and then, and then people just can't get over how bad that hymn was. Or, or, or the seating's a problem. Or uh, why don't we have more activities, or why don't we have fewer activities, or whatever, whatever, whatever. and there just ends up this consumer mentality that just kills the Great Commission. And that's what's happened in Corinth. They've been so into their little factions and their little comforts and their personal desires in church, they've forgotten that there's lost people all over Europe and they've got an opportunity to help plant churches. Get them back to a bigger purpose here. It's not all about them. He said the same thing to the Roman church. And he's closing his letter to the Romans, which he wrote in Corinth. Whenever I go to Spain, I'm hoping to see you in passing and be helped by you on my way. When I have first enjoyed our company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Isn't that interesting? The same two things that he wants for the Roman church, he wants for the Corinthian church. Serve the saints and help proclaim the gospel. You reckon that might be what he wants for the Anderson church as well? It's not going to happen if we don't have this kind of vision that he expects us to have and we're, if we're just consumed with ourselves. He goes on to say here, about this comparison stuff, but here's a profound verse, verse 17. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. There is a certain, if you could put it this way, approved pride. And that is, well, it's not even pride, it's boasting, but it's, it, it's because the, the, the object of praise goes to God and not to man. Again, going back to the end of Romans, Paul says therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. If you, it, this is one reason why it's, if you are wallowing in self-pity and you're depressed or whatever, this is one reason why reading the book of Revelation is such a great idea or even just starting it. You probably won't get through three chapters before you're You're fixed, in a sense. Because Revelation's all about boasting in God, glorifying in God. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Revelation Chapter 7, after this, I looked in a great multitude, that's some of you, that, will, that, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's, the, that's a church service in heaven. I like what Hugh says. He says, in Revelation, there's no self-congratulation, only divine adulation. This is one reason why we emphasize the doctrines of grace so often in our church. It's not a pride thing. It's not because we're in the Presbyterian club and you're not. It's because it's all about God's glory. And I think the more we recognize that, the more, the more God really is glorified, and the less we're consumed with our own, Pitiful failures and comparisons and that kind of thing. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. So it, this idea of boasting can occur. It should occur. But it truly can only occur from the heart when you really do trust that God is holy love. When you really do put your confidence in him. If you're bitter towards God... Uh, or you don't believe in God, you don't believe in his love, you don't believe in his forgiveness, you're going to struggle with this. Chambers says this, Faith is not a pathetic sentiment, but robust, vigorous confidence built on the fact that God is holy love. You cannot see him just now. You cannot understand what he is doing, but you know him Shipwreck occurs where there is not that mental poise that comes from being established on the eternal truth that God is holy love. Faith is the heroic effort of your life. You fling yourself in reckless confidence on God. If you've got a reckless confidence on God because you know He is holy love, you're just not going to be, you're not going to fall in all the pitfalls of comparison and in boasting in yourself. You're going to keep your eyes on Fulfilling God's great commission, the ministry of the church, instead of did you get your seat? Was the coffee warm enough? Galatians six fourteen says this, May it be that I would not boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been cruci- has crucified to me and I to the world. Just very quickly in closing here, you see verse 18 here. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but it is the Lord who commends in the end. It it is only God's approval that matters. That's all that matters is God's... That's a a great message for you young people in particular because it is really tempting. You know, when you get to be my age, you kind of get to where you don't care what other people think. Am I right? You know, you kind of been there and done that. You've lost too much sleep over what other people think you know I mean I mean you bathe, I don't mean you take it that far, but 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 when you're young, you're consumed with what other people think. There was literally a time I would have died for my fraternity, which I ended up dropping out of by the time I finished Clemson, you know? But you just consume with that. But be consumed with what God thinks. And you'll be a far better person for everybody else as well. Second Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Matthew 25, 23. Which it's amazing how many times we close sermons with this text. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So really... The success of this church, the success of your household, and your joy in this life, in so many ways, has to do with having a proper perspective. Now, the devil's going to be trying to knock that down all the time. And you're going to have to constantly fight putting off bad thoughts and putting on good thoughts. But I think this text and the Jeremiah text will help us do that. It's just not complicated, but it's really difficult, isn't it? Considering how many... Signals we get from ourselves and signals we get from our culture. So a proper perspective in ministry would fulfill Paul's and Jeremiah's admonition. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and Lord, give us strength. In fact, we almost have more wisdom when we have more strength. We know these things to be truth. They're just really hard to fulfill. Because we tend to even almost want to listen to the negative voices, the comparisons, the boastings, the selfishness from ourselves and from the culture. But Lord, as we know, our greatest thing that we can do is to be renewed by the transforming of our mind so that we can present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Let us even see this week the joy of what it means to live with a transformed mind, proper perspectives as a living sacrifice to God and show us your great holy love and how much you do care for us.